Hello, Hopeful. I'm Roger Corville, and this is For the Hope's Daily Audio Bible. Here, we read through the scriptures conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn to fall more in love with Jesus and the people in His world. Welcome. What do you do with a book in the Old Testament that doesn't mention God? Not even once. In addition to that, there's no comment on Torah. There's no mention of the temple. And if all of this is true, how do you even find Jesus in that? My friends, today we begin the book of Esther. And it is a great reminder that God fulfills his redemptive promises, sometimes through miracles, but also through divine providence working through ordinary events. And that gets us to episode 2055 of our journey together through the Bible, reading through every word of God's revelation of himself and considering our own life and work stories in light of that. Glad to be with you, feeling kind of human again. That's kind of great. And uh, while we begin our reading uh, in the New Testament around here, most of the time, I don't want to leave you hanging with regard to that kind of opening question. And it's Graham Goldsworthy who offers some helpful wisdom here. Quote, We do not start at Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it's all leading. Rather, we first come to Christ and he directs us to study the Old Testament in light of the gospel. The gospel will interpret the Old Testament by showing us its goal and its meaning. So there you go. It all points to Jesus. So let's start with Jesus. And we're in a section of Luke where various actions by Jesus and his disciples led to criticism from the Pharisees and showed how the new way of the kingdom of God contrasted with the Pharisaic emphasis on strict keeping of the law. That included, as you will hear today, rules that violated the intent of the Sabbath commandment. Luke starting in chapter 6. On the Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priests. He even gave some to those who were with him. And then Jesus told them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he told the man, Stretch out your hand. The man did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. And my friends, that gets us up through verse 19, which is about as far as we're going to get, given our need to get to uh, a right chunk of Esther. Before we move on, it's worth mentioning, Sabbath regulations should not keep us from attending to human needs. Right, That's one of the two lessons in that particular passage. Importantly, God often fulfills his redemptive promises through divine providence, working through ordinary events, and dare I say, people. And that's a theme not just for today, but actually for the whole book of Esther. Now, the events of Esther took place concurrently with what we've been reading in Ezra. And in fact, we pick up right between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra, and that's why we're reading it now. Esther. Picking up in chapter 1. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and the drinking was according to royal decree, saying, There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abag Abagtha, <laughs> Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials, 
because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti, she refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs, and the king became furious, and his anger burned within him. Now the king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memekin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, According to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti, since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus's command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Memekin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti to brought before him, and she didn't come. And before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked, saying, Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. Now the king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memekin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. Now when the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. 
The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. Now, during the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Hahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to the second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. And when her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti, and the king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. Now when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed or Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Now, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, he promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? And when they had warned him day after day, he would still not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage 
And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pure, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples of every province in your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from anyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for a deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And then the king told Haman, The money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the royal signet ring, and letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling them, telling the officials to destroy kill and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. And that's kind of the context of evil, isn't it? (laughs) Evil breeds confusion. Well, we'll pick that up uh, when we return tomorrow. Today we're going to wrap up with a wisdom segment, which is Psalm 139. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, Surely the darkness will hide me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. 
you knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. If only you would kill the wicked who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139 My friends, God fulfills His redemptive promises not only through great miracles, but also through divine providence working through ordinary events and perhaps even ordinary lives. Why? Because the actions of people who do not worship Him are woven into patterns and purposes de determined even still by the Sovereign Lord alone. And I guess the question for us, my friends, is whether or not we will look for them. I love you. Amen. Amen.